Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Double Check Podcast. I am Colin. And I am Brett. And it is a new year. 2019. Brett. 2019. Is it, bow, a bow, new, bow. is it a new you? No, it's the same me that it was a few days ago. <laughs> same me, new year, same me. <laughs> oh, I'm, all, I'm 2018, 2019, I'm hype. No matter what. Hype. Okay. Hype. hype. Colin, what'd you do for New Year's? I already know what you did. I got hype, man. It was it was hyphy. They used to say hyphy. And then that Who just said hyphy. That was the thing. That was the thing back in the day. What day? I've never heard anyone. That was say like hyphy. okay, so that was like early two thousands. It was hyphy. And then that became hype. That's my theory on it. Of the the evolution of slang terms. Okay. I will look into that. I have no idea if that is true or false. My gut tells me that is not true at all. But it might be one of those weird things that actually is true. I'm pretty sure because I, I seem to remember people people be saying hyphy, like H-Y-P-H-E. That was the thing in like early 2000s. Okay, I'll ask some. Well, you would know because you're a little bit older than I am. Yeah, I mean, that's the time when I was coming up, you yeah. know. Anyway, uh, yeah. we have a new uh, new year, and so we uh, are going to be beginning some new subjects uh, with our podcast. This podcast is all about exploring life, theology, and culture, and we want to thank you for listening, whether it's on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you rate us, review us, give us five stars. Come on, man, don't be a hater. And uh, Brett, uh, so- sounds like we're going to be digging into some newer uh, new subjects in, yeah, in the new year. We're going to start changing some directions. I've got a direction I want to go over the next month or so. And uh, you've got some things that, that you've charted out long-term for us to get to. So um, I'm excited reading through some of the stuff that you've written so far. I think we're going to have some good conversation. Yeah, I, I think so too. Uh, we're going to start today. We're going to go back to the old coin flip. Now, this is episode 12. And I don't remember who is supposed to be flipping and who's supposed to be calling. I think... Us. If I recall, you flipped last time, and then you did not defer because it was different than normal. Okay. I think you flipped, and you didn't defer, which means that... No, 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 no. You won the coin toss. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I remember. So it was you flipped, and it was the flip that didn't flip. We had to reflip it. The flip that didn't flip. And it came up tails. Yeah, that's right. And then... You did not defer. You kept it for yourself. Okay. Right. So you should be so flipping. I have to flip, calling. and you're going to call. So right. heads, tails, call it. Heads. And it is heads. So heads. what the is your choice? The tail streak has fallen. I will defer. All right. Brett's going to defer, and I'm going to talk today about Christmas yet again. Yes. Come on. Well, well, Christmas has just passed, and we've been on this series of different holiday themes for our past four or five episodes or so. And I'm going to continue talking about Christmas today with an exploration of who were the mysterious magi. And someone like Brett might say, Colin, Christmas is over. Can you just move on to something else? Well, I will in time, I promise. But I think it's still appropriate to talk about the Magi after Christmas is over because even though their story is considered part of the Christmas account, they didn't actually show up until about two years later, according to the biblical record. 
So this is one that fittingly comes after the birth celebration. Now, when we consider the different Christmas events, actually not much is generally known about the mysterious magi who came to worship the infant Jesus. Most of what we associate with the magi is from early church traditions. In fact, most people don't even call them magi as the Bible does. They simply call them wise men, but the biblical text calls them magi. Most have assumed that there were three of them since they brought three specific gifts, but the biblical text does not specify how many of them there were. And they were called magi from the Latinized form of the Greek word magoi, which was transliterated from the Persian word for a select sect of priests. And our word magic comes from the same root. As the years passed on, traditions about the magi became increasingly embellished. By the 3rd century, they were called kings. By the 6th century, they were given names, Bithesaria, Melikior, and Gethaspa. Some associated them with Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and thus they came to represent Asia, Africa, and Europe. A 14th century Armenian tradition identifies them as Balthazar, the king of Arabia, Melchior, the king of Persia, and Gaspar, the king of India. Now, these are all interesting traditions that have been handed down, but none of them are really supported by what the scripture or history actually says. So what do we really know about the Magi? Well, we know that the ancient Magi were a hereditary priesthood of the Median Empire, credited with profound religious knowledge. After some Magi who had been attached to the Median court proved to be expert in the interpretation of dreams, Darius the Great established them over the state religion of Persia. And it was in this dual capacity whereby civil and political council was invested with religious authority that the Magi became the supreme priestly caste of the Persian Empire. And they continued to be prominent during the subsequent Seleucid, Parthian, and Sasanian periods. Now, the book of Daniel records in chapters 4 and 5 that one of the titles given to Daniel was Rab Mag, the chief of the Magi. Daniel's career included being a principal administrator in two world empires, the Babylonian and the subsequent Persian Empire. When Darius appointed him, a Jew, over the previously hereditary Median priesthood, the resulting repercussions resulted in the plots leading to the lion's den. But Daniel was put in charge of the Magi. Now, this is just a hunch I have, but it is quite possible that Daniel entrusted a messianic vision to be announced in due time by a star to a secret sect of the Magi for its eventual fulfillment. Now, since the days of Daniel, the fortunes of both the Persian and the Jewish nations have been closely intertwined. Both nations fell under Seleucid domination following the conquests of Alexander the Great. And both later regained their independence, the Jews did so in the Maccabean Revolt, and the Persians as the dominating ruling group within the Parthian Empire. Now, it was at this time that the Magi composed the upper house of the Council of the Magi Straits, whose duties included the absolute choice and election of the king of the realm. 
So what we have is a group of Persian Parthian king makers who entered Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 2. And if you understand the history between Rome and Parthia up to that point, it becomes clear as to why this made Herod so nervous. See, in 63 and 55 BC respectively, Pompey and Carsus both had led Roman legions in conquering Jerusalem and then going on to attack Parthia proper. But the Parthians defeated them handily on both occasions, killing upwards of 30,000 Roman soldiers, and then they launched counterattacks into the Roman regions of, in Armenia, Syria, and Palestine. Mark Anthony later reestablished Roman sovereignty in 37 BC, and he launched another ill-fated campaign on Parthia. But this time, when Parthia launched their counterattack, they swept all Roman opposition out of Palestine completely. So even though Rome was the big gorilla on the block, they were still never able to overtake the Parthian regions east of Palestine. And Palestine itself served as something of a buffer state between the two empires. Now, by the time Herod rose to power, the region officially was considered Roman, but it was occupied by Parthian armies. Now, when Caesar granted Herod the title of the king of the Jews, Herod had to wait out a three-year and five-month-long siege of the region to drive back the Parthians back out of the area until he was, before he was finally able to occupy his own capital city in Jerusalem. So there's a lot of tensions at the time of Christ's birth. Herod is there in this buffer state between two rival empires who for the past 60 years had been fighting over this region. And add to that, that Herod was appointed by Rome as king of the Jews, but that was wildly unpopular with the Jews in Palestine because Herod was not Jewish. He was an Edomaean, an Edomite, and they were the historic enemies of the Jews. So to say that the peace was delicate is a massive understatement. So with that as a background, you can imagine what the sudden appearance of the Magi in Jerusalem, probably traveling in force with every imaginable oriental pomp and accompanied by an adequate military escort to ensure their safe penetration into Roman territory, well, that certainly alarmed Herod and the populace of Jerusalem. Have you ever noticed that the text says that all Jerusalem was disturbed? It's hard for me to imagine just three guys on camels causing that kind of widespread panic. But a Parthian priestly entourage with a military escort causing such panic, well, that's definitely understandable. And the request of Herod regarding the one who had been born king of the Jews was a calculated insult to him. Since Herod was a non-Jew who had contrived and bribed his way into that office. But Herod consulted the scribes who told him that Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem, and most of us are familiar with the story from there. But the other thing about the story of the Magi that has always intrigued me was the star of Bethlehem. The Magi told Herod, quote, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. But what was this star? It's been speculated about for centuries. Could it have been a comet or a meteor? Or a supernova? What about a special alignment of planets? Well, it was apparently visible in the sky for about two years straight. So the longevity of the star rules out a comet or a meteor. 
The star had to appear each night for about two years in order to lead the Magi all the way from Persia in the Far East to Jerusalem. And the possibility of a supernova or a planetary alignment is ruled out by the fact that the star constantly moved, leading the Magi first to Jerusalem and then to Bethlehem, and it finally moved and stopped hovering over the house where Mary and Joseph had gone with the Christ child. Well, Messianic Jewish scholar Alfred Edersheim proposed another solution to this mystery. He points out that the Greek word translated star can really mean radiance. The star, therefore, could have been what the Jews called the Shekinah glory. That is a physical manifestation of the glory of God in the form of a supernatural radiance. Now, I had never heard this solution in the hearing of the Christmas story, but why not? It's what led the Jews through the wilderness. It's what resided in the Holy of Holies in the Temple of Solomon. So why not here? Why would the Shekinah glory not be able to lead a group of kingmakers from Persia in the east to the place where they would find the one who was born as king of the Jews? Now, I know that Christmas Day 2018 has come and gone. No one is looking forward to the holidays anymore. Everyone is thinking about their New Year's resolutions, the 30 pounds they're going to lose this year, and all the New Year New Me posts bombarding social media. But as you think about the star of Bethlehem that pointed mankind to the first coming of the Messiah, keep in mind that Jesus will soon return as the bright and morning star, and that is something to be looking forward to all the time. All right. There's two things that I want to get to here before we move on. The first thing is that these, not kings probably, but kingmakers, I think that's a great way to, to think about the Magi, the way that you laid that out. Why is it that God would use people outside of the nation of Israel, show something to them and bring them here to Bethlehem and ultimately to where Jesus and Mary and Joseph are residing. Why is it that God is going to do that for someone outside the nation of Israel? See, to me, that, that seems a little bit confusing. It, it can be confusing. I could see why that is something that stands out. But if you, if you examine the stories in the Old Testament, God always has mercy on the nations. Like, just take, for example, when Moses was leading the people out of Egypt. It was, you know, every, every house that had the blood on their doorposts, the death angel was going to pass over that house and spare them. Well, there was nothing that said the Egyptians couldn't do that. The Egyptians could have t taken the blood and put it on the door of their house, and they would have been spared. And in fact, I think in the account, in the, we're not given this specific number, I don't think, but in the book of Exodus, when they left Egypt, there were some from the nation of Egypt that came with them. So God's invitation, while uh, he does have a specific plan and purpose for Israel— and that is the nation that is his chosen people that he is bringing the Messiah in, he still offers grace and mercy 
to all nations. Uh, that, that example is one, even from the very beginnings uh, of, of the Bible. And so uh, to, to think that, um, especially given the time that, uh, that Israel was in exile in Babylon and, and under the Persian Empire, if you look at things like the book of Esther and, and um, you know, just the, the book of Daniel, the, the history between the Jews and the Persians, Jews had a prominent place in Persia. Uh, the the Persians, you know, had a great respect for the God of of Israel. When when um, when Darius sacked Jerusalem and they brought out the prophecy that named him specifically, and he spared the temple, I think that what we have when you see the Old Testament is a picture of the new covenant, where your nationality doesn't matter. The book of Romans outlines the, the advantages of being a Jew. You know, they had the revelation of God. They had the very word of God. They had the ark. They had the temple. But the promise uh, of God's love and God's mercy was for all nations and all people. And uh, I think that that's, that's what we find in the New Covenant. I think that's a good point to bring up to people that – have uh, reservations, issues with thinking that the God of the New Testament is different than the God of the Old Testament, that somehow uh, either they are two completely different gods or somehow God has changed his nature, changed who he is uh, somehow whenever Jesus came. Um, now, even before all of it was for the for the betterment for all of mankind, not just Israel. Now, Israel was his chosen people, and and like you said, salvation comes first for the Jew and then to the Gentile, right? But it's still for the Gentile. Right. Um, so I think that's a great way of approaching that. And uh, good for listeners and myself to think about and remember, and we get to see that here in the Christmas story as well, even if it is two years after the the actual birth of Jesus. And then the other thing that I wanted to get to was uh, this this really interesting thing that you brought up at the end about the Shekinah glory, about uh, maybe it wasn't actually a star. Maybe it was ju- it was the, the radiance that that is God, Jesus, who is God being here on earth. What is it? Let's, let's say that that is what happened. Why is it that these magi were the only people that were paying attention to this, you think? Uh, well, I think, you know, and this, again, is just my hunch, but I think that when Daniel was in captivity in Persia and he was put as the the chief of the magi, that Daniel, we already know Daniel received uh, a large number of messianic revelations. Like you can just read through the book of Daniel and, you know, Daniel 7 and Daniel 9 and Daniel 12 about like, he, he basically is outlining world history from the time that uh, Israel is in captivity until the return of the Messiah. And so he received a, a, a large number of messianic visions. And I have a feeling that the number that he wrote down in comparison to the number that he actually received is... is um, Marginal. Uh, And so my hunch is that Daniel entrusted the Magi 
with this messianic vision that at the time of the Messiah's birth, there was going to be this radiance, this, this maybe, maybe, you know, it was the Shekinah glory, but whatever it was, there was going to be something that appeared that was visible in the sky that you would only see if you were looking for it specifically. And so for three, three, four centuries before Jesus came, you have this priesthood in Persia that has received this, this vision from that, that Daniel received from God and gave to them, and they're, they're on the lookout for it. Much the same way that the Jews had received the scriptures and they were, you know, on the, on the look for their Messiah, the Persians were told, this is the guy that's going to be king over heaven and earth. And, you know, this is a, a priestly caste that is tasked with anointing uh, the kings of Persia. And Daniel says, this guy is, he is the one. He is the king of kings. It's just, you know, maybe there's not really anything to it, but it's just kind of my hunch that this sect of, of Magi had been on the look of, for this for, for centuries. I find it particularly encouraging that the people that came to anoint the king of the Jews were not actually, and the king of all of creation, were not actually Jews themselves, not part of the nation of Israel. And I had not really thought about the significance of that, but just the proclamation that it makes that he is king not only of Jews but over all people. I think we should find that really encouraging. So that's that's the only questions I have about that. Where do you think you're going to go next, Colin? Uh, well, I'm not going to talk about Christmas in our next episode. Uh, I know <laughs> we've we've dealt with a lot uh, concerning Christmas, and we've dealt with a lot concerning theology and and church culture. And and I'm going to talk uh, more about some of those things in the future. But I think next week. I'm going to put all that aside, and I'm going to talk specifically about culture. And I'm going to talk uh, j- just like you had a little bit of a hot take with the uh, the little drummer boy. This may be considered a hot take, might might ruffle a few feathers, but I'm going to talk about one of the world's leading tech companies that just permeates our society, uh, at least in in the United States, just permeates everything. Well, I think uh, the whole world. I know what's going to come, and it's definitely the whole world. Yeah, yeah. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say who it is, but uh, I'm gonna talk specifically about culture and technology next week. All right, I'm gonna go ahead with my thesis. It is titled "You Don't Complete Me." Scattered throughout the next few weeks, I'm going to be going back and forth between varied topics and topics that are specifically related to relationships, how we interact with one another, how we organize relationships, what we expect in relationships, how God has or hasn't ordained certain things for relationships. And where I want to start this whole conversation, it can be summed up in an iconic Hollywood movie scene. Have you ever seen the movie Jerry Maguire? Yes. I haven't, actually. And don't worry if you haven't either. You probably actually heard uh, about this scene. It gets quoted all the time. Even someone like me, uh, I watch very few movies. I've never seen it. You probably know the quote from Tom Cruise's character. He says, 
you complete me. That phrase, you complete me, or something similar to it, it seems to be what people want to hear when it comes to the most important people in their lives. In a really awesome and admirable way, it's something that people want to be able to say to another person. To be wanted and to make someone feel wanted and needed is a part of us, I'd say. What I think we have wrong now is that it is something that we expect to happen. We expect there to be someone who completes us, who we can lay expectations at and they come, they pick them up and they run with them. You are probably thinking about romantic relationships whenever I say these things, but I encourage you to look outside of that. How often do parents pile expectations on their children? Maybe they view their kid as the completion of their life's work. I'm going to unpack how all this plays out in all sorts of relationships and hopefully pull out some biblical principles for double-checking our thinking on it. But today I want to hone in on one part of a romantic relationship, the idea of a soulmate. The idea of a soulmate, in my understanding, is the idea that there is one person in the world, one person, who you are destined to live your life with and love, that they are the yin to your yang, the one and only person that complements you in every way. The idea of soulmates can be traced back even to antiquity, but it is obvious that for most of history, it has not been an idea that gained traction in the practicalities of life. The fact that arranged marriages and marriages for social and political advancement were so common helped support that assertion. But now, because many of those traditions surrounding marriage are gone, especially in the culture that we find ourselves in right now, the idea of a soulmate seems to be more realistic and attainable, perhaps. We are surrounded with it in pop culture. If I can just find my person, I'll be happy. And somehow, it isn't just pop culture. How often in church settings are singles made to feel less or incomplete because they aren't married? That's something for another thesis, but it gives us insight into how this has entered our churches as well. I firmly believe that soulmates, in the form and fashion we characterize them now, they do not exist. And I have two very specific reasons why. My first reason is we are all sinners. I believe that the Bible teaches that we are tainted with a sin nature, and as such, all of what we touch and who we are are tainted and imperfect. And because of this, all relationships are not able to be the all-satisfying, soulmate-level, all-warm-and-fuzzy feelings we think they should be. But Brett, surely there is grace from God that can make this possible. Sure, God could speak and make this sort of thing possible, but look at what God himself says about how sin taints the original soulmates. Here's from Genesis 3, verse 16. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. Here it is. The man and woman God literally made for one another. And if there could ever be a pair of soulmates, it would definitely be Adam and Eve. And God is telling Eve the reality that now exists because of sin in the world, 
Remember the guy that broke out in songful poetry after you were created, Eve? Yeah, there will now be contention and strife between you. In the words of John Piper, sin now has the upper hand in the relationship. So that's reason number one. Reason number two, God is sovereign. Often with this, especially in Christian culture here and now, people get all caught up in finding God's one for them. In other words, even though they may not say it, they're soulmate. When someone says this or acts on this, what they're saying is, I have to discern God's specific will or God's specific call for me here, and if I don't, everything is going to fall apart. As I view it, by elevating God's specific will and thinking that it is up to you to figure it out actually minimizes something else, God's sovereignty. We've talked about these things before, so I won't go in-depth about discerning God's call and what it is and what the Bible says about it. Instead, I just want to bring to light one thing. By thinking that there is only one way, one person, and to limit yourself and live in fear wanting to make sure you've found that one soulmate, you're effectively saying, God, you can only work and be effective in this one direction. You are dependent on me to make it right. I don't think people would say this out loud, but their actions are saying that they don't trust in the sovereignty of God that God is above all and in all, and that nothing comes to pass without the allowance and knowledge of God. This may upset people, and there may be people that genuinely feel as though they have a soulmate and have found them. Great for you. I, too, feel very strongly about the connection that I have with my wife, and I believe God orchestrated some circumstances to continually place us in each other's lives. So I do think God was working in our relationship. But if one of us had made a different decision, or if one circumstance had made it so that we had not gotten together, God would still be sovereign, and we both could have found someone else or stayed single, and that would have been okay. I praise God that I do have my wife, and I wouldn't change a thing. I hope that if you are married or in a relationship working towards marriage, you feel the exact same way. But remember that God is above all and over all and in all, and they aren't your quote-unquote soulmate. They can't fulfill your expectations that you place on them. Only God can do that. All right. So um, I have a few questions here. And uh, the first one, I know that this was really not the point of your thesis. It was kind of just a jumping off point for you. But have you really never seen the movie Jerry Maguire? No, I've never seen it. All right. Well, I didn't even know that it was about sports until I started looking this up. Oh, man. Okay. So I feel like we're missing some context here with the whole you complete me thing in Jerry Maguire because the story of it is Jerry Maguire is a sports agent. He gets fired. Uh, by his agency, but he is like trying to retain all his clients. He's only able to retain one client, and it's uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. portraying this guy, Rod Tidwell. And Rod Tidwell, you know, he's the show me the money guy. That's the other famous quote that came from that. But there's a conversation that happens between the two of them, um, and it's around uh, this thing that Rod Tidwell calls Quan. Have you ever heard anybody use the phrase Quan? 
I don't have a clue. Well, they're fighting, and he's like, oh, you just want to, you know, get all your money and stuff. And, and Rod Tidwell's like, no, I want the Quan. And he says, what is the Quan? And he says, it means love, loyalty, respect, community, and the dollars, too. It's the whole package, the Quan. It's everything that you could ever want, everything that you've ever hoped for, completeness, satisfaction, whatever that means for you, it's your Quan. So later on, Jerry Maguire has been dating this girl. He's, he's, you know, he hasn't married her or anything. He's just kind of like shacking up with her. And Rod Tidwell straight, says straight up to him, man, like, yo, you shoplifting. You shoplifting the booty. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, I didn't shoplift it. Okay, I shoplifted it. But then throughout the course of it, I won't go into all the details, but Jerry Maguire realizes that telling this girl that he loves him, uh, that he loves her and, and marrying her and, and actually like being a husband, that's his quan. That's his complete package. And so that's why he says to her, "You." well, he's copying some guy that he heard earlier say it too, but that's a, that's a different story. But that's his Not quan. Not even original. That's his complete package. So you complete me. He's basically saying, you're my quan. Now, with that as the context, as that is, uh, uh, and that is the perspective, what's wrong with that, I guess, is my question. Like, th- he's, not, he's not thinking there is only one person for me. He's thinking this person gives me everything I've ever wanted. It's still laying expectations at someone's feet that no one could ever possibly be able to hold up to, even if it is... Uh, let's say it's completely a completely selfless act that his Quan is being able to sacrifice and serve this woman that uh, I think he is married to at the, at the point at the end whenever he says this you complete me yes um, so this 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 woman that he's married even if it is a completely selfless act he is still a sinner too. And he's never going to be able to live up that, to that expectation that he has for himself. So whatever completeness that he thinks he's going to get from this, uh, whether it be from her or from himself or from a combination of the two, it's, uh, it's, he's going to be left lacking at some point. Why, why do you think that he's going to be left lacking? What, uh, if this is his quan? Why, why is he going to, uh, in the end, not be satisfied completely? Or let me put the question another way. So let's forget about Jerry Maguire. That's a Hollywood movie. Okay. Somebody out there listening may be, uh, you know, dating a girl or a guy or, or whatever, and they, they're thinking to themselves, yeah, you know, uh, uh, Betsy or, 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 or Bob over there, you know, that's, that's my Betsy quad. and Bob. Betsy and Bob. That's that's my quan. And you know, if I if I get with this person, if I marry this person and get to spend the rest of my life with them, that'll give me the desires of my heart, that'll give me the satisfaction, that'll give that'll you know, complete everything that I've ever wanted. What's wrong with thinking of it like that? First off, they're never going to be able to give you everything that you want. 
you're never going to be able to give them everything that they want. I think I, I think I've covered that well. But what happens if and when? And I'm not saying that it would happen, but the only thing you can control is yourself, right? The only thing that you can control is yourself. And even if another person makes you a promise, makes you a covenant, uh, if you want to think about it in in marriage, it is very possible that they are able to and that they will walk away from that. And so what happens to your Quan whenever that part of you that completed you has now walked out under no uh, it, completely by their own volition, nothing that you've you've done. You now have that part that is missing from you. And so let me transition now to um, perhaps a, a Christian worldview. The one person that you can make a covenant with, the one uh, God that you can make a covenant with is the God of the Bible. It makes multiple covenants with his people, with individuals all throughout the Bible. The covenants that God makes Whenever God makes a covenant, he basically Hebrews tells us that he that he swears to uh, swears by himself because there's no other thing that he could swear higher to. So whenever something someone is able to swear by themselves, which is the creator of everything, that covenant is not going to be broken. It can't be broken because it's been sworn to a power that is higher than anything that's possible. So. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what your quan is if it's not God, because God is the only complete person, the only complete thing that would be able to ever ultimately satisfy all that who all of who we are and all of what we could ever want. That's what I was trying to get at. Is Jesus is. Uh, it, to steal the phrase from Rod Tidwell, Jesus is our ambassador of Quan, you know, except he says it about Jerry Maguire. Anyway, um, where uh, where are you going to go next, Brett? So I am going to kind of go back and forth. I'm going to keep this series on relationships. Like the next relationship uh, one that I'm going to do is going to be about children and parents and the relationship between them, specifically looking at the, the point of view from a parent to a child. Uh, so that's going to be in, in two weeks, but I'm going to alternate to keep it fresh. Next week, I am going to talk about uh, raising teenagers in both our society at large and in the church. And I think I have a unique perspective on this because I was a public school teacher and I am currently a, a student minister at the church that I that I serve at. So uh I have uh, an interesting thought that I would like to share with everyone. And because you said the words interesting thought, it means it's time for listener mail. Listener mail. Listener mail. Uh, We got this letter. This is actually the first uh, correspondence we've received from a listener. comes from this guy named John. Uh, and he's commenting, actually, on the Little Drummer Boy episode, which we talked about earlier. Oh, yeah. He says, guys, first of all, great episode. My very first thought about the Little Drummer Boy was, yes, I hate that song. Then I was like, wait a minute. That Verizon commercial with the drum line is awesome. 
but that's Carol of the Bells. So obviously the indignation from Brett was a little played up. I rather enjoyed the over-the-top approach to the criticism of the song. However, after he read the lyrics, I was like, wait a minute. Here we have a boy with nothing to give, no tangible gift, it seems. So he just pours himself out before his king, not to earn the king's favor, but simply because he is the king. Sounds like my response to the gospel. A great response to the gospel. Still don't like the song, Still he says. Still don't like the song, yep. So uh, you got uh, you got a little bit of a somewhat of a pushback, but also somewhat of an agreement there, Brett. Yeah, I appreciate that, Mel. That's that's good, Mel. He uh, validated a little bit of what I said. I appreciate that, John. And uh, I I do like how he brought out the gospel impact part of it. That all that we can do in light of seeing the King of all of creation is to just bring what we can because he doesn't need it, right? We just bring what we have. And if that's uh, us playing a drum that uh, goes ba-rum-bum-bum-bum, then there we go. That's a great response to the gospel if that's what we have. All right. Then he says, can you roast away in a manger or silent night? I mean, labor is anything but silent. These two songs really downplay the fully human aspect of Jesus. What are your thoughts? Away in a manger, no crib for a bed. The little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. It sounds so nice, and I'm sure that Jesus was very sweet, but uh, he was also truly human, and I don't think that uh, babies have sweet little heads that they just lay down to go sleep, which kind of leads into, uh, what is it, Silent Night? It was definitely not a silent night. Okay, there's animals, and there's birth. I don't. I've never been a part of a childbirth, but I can imagine. I've seen it on Friends, and <laughs> and uh, and then the shepherds show up, and uh, Mary just got done giving birth. I'm sure she did not like that, but uh, you know, it's whatever. I mean, so what he says here is that he thinks that they downplay the fully human aspect of Jesus. I have to give him a little bit of pushback on that because I, th- I think I disagree. You know, the little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. Well, if he's not fully human, he doesn't need to lay down his sweet head and, and take a nap. He just keeps going all the time. So, I mean, that is one of the aspects of Jesus that he took on flesh, which means he got tired. He had to go to sleep sometimes. So uh, I don't know if I uh, if I fully agree with that, but I definitely, John, appreciate you writing. Um, if anyone out there has any comments, questions, or concerns, or death threats, uh, make sure you send those to us, doublecheckpodcast at gmail.com. And Brett, do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up? My final thought is, Oh Holy Night is the best Christmas song of all time. That's all I got. All right. And that's all I got. And remember, Jesus is your ambassador of Quan. We'll see you next time. See ya. <laughs>